Okay, good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight is part one of what will probably be a two-part, not a three-part, but a two-part section of this course on the path to nuclear weapons, Israel's path to nuclear weapons. And in a series of lectures that are covering Israel's clandestine activities, you have to cover this because this was the big secret. And the question is, how well kept a secret was it? And depends upon what year, what decade we're talking about. And before I get into the details, I should make one general point. The hiding, the concealment of Israel's nuclear program from international inspections was probably just as difficult, if not more so, of an achievement as the program itself. So there were two two things simultaneously going on. One the development scientifically and the construction of a weapon, and the other, making sure the people who you don't want to have know about it don't know about it. Okay, well, the story of Israel's nuclear weapon really begins on October 27th, 1945. And on that day, David Ben-Gurion went to Bergen-Belsen and saw with his own eyes the horrific outcome of the Shoah. He was heartbroken, and he wrote down in his little notebook everything that he saw. Eisenhower met him and gave him a warm reception. We shall see the role of Eisenhower later in this story, when he's no longer a general, but rather president of the United States. So Ben-Gurion's reaction to seeing the worst of man's inhumanity to the Jewish people is that the Jewish people have to rely upon themselves, and only themselves, for their defense, and that the ultimate deterrent would be a nuclear bomb. Of course, in 1945, Israel doesn't even exist yet. It's not a state, and the chance of Israel, of the Zionist enterprise being successful is still very shaky. You know, the the likelihood that the Zionist enterprise would produce a state and a state capable of defending itself repeatedly from onslaught, nobody knew yet. But in Ben-Gurion's own mind, we need technological and scientific advances over the Arabs, because the Arabs are eventually going to, are going to attack. As soon as Israel comes into existence, they're going to attack again and again and again. Another person who plays a role in this story is Munya Mardor, who would go on to become the head of Rafael, or Israel's weapons manufacturing agency. And he too was involved in the mid to late 40s in this story, the story of the Mossad Lali Abet, the Institute for Illegal Immigration. So he was a heavy, an important player in getting Jews out of the DP camps of Europe and into Palestine, illegally running the British blockade. Um, Mardor would go on to play an important role in manufacturing the ultimate Israeli weapon. And he was chosen by Ben-Gurion precisely because of his patriotism and his willingness to take on difficult tasks. In the mid to late 40s, shortly after the war, there were people in the interim French government who felt bad about France's complicity in the Holocaust, that while they themselves had been opposed to the Vichy regime, and some of them had been part of the Free French Forces and been part of the French underground, and some of them went to concentration camps, uh, they felt bad that their country had, in the Vichy regime, facilitated the death of, of, of thousands of French Jews. And so... Among these people, one stands out, a man by the name of Abel Thomas. Abel Thomas, 
uh, was a conscience-stricken Frenchman who made it his life's mission to defend the Jewish people afterward and to stand up for, for the state of Israel in its times of crisis. His brother, Pierre, had died at Buchenwald. And so that's what made him a, a emotional kinsman of the Jewish people, that his own brother died at the vicious hands of the Nazis, so he was going to stick up for the Jews. He will become important later in this story. The name Abel Thomas. Keep that name in mind. Well, Ben-Gurion knew that war with the Arab states was going to happen as soon as independence was declared. And that there would be multiple rounds. If the Arabs lost, they would try again and again and again. But if the Jews lost even once, they would be doomed to extinction. And so the fear harbored by Ben-Gurion led him to pursue this nuclear option. But he was not uh, alone at the leadership of the Zionist enterprise. Chaim Weizmann had been president of the WZO for a long time, and still even after his departure was the elder statesman of Zionism. And Weizmann, the scientist and a leading figure at the the Rehovot Institute, which would later take on his name as the Weizmann Institute, he opposed any pursuit of nuclear weapons. So what Weizmann tried to do was to marshal his influence over the Yishuv's and later uh, State of Israel scientific community to sabotage Ben-Gurion's nuclear ideas. So we're going to see there's a machlokis, a disagreement between those who want to pursue a bomb and those who think it's a terrible, terrible idea. Well, on July 1st, 1945, on the Upper East Side, well, actually not so Upper, I think it was 57th Street, uh, so it's below 59th, so it doesn't count as Upper, it's Midtown, um, at the home of Rudolf Sonneborn, a rich Jew who made his money in the Schmatter business, Ben-Gurion held court with some of the richest Jews in America. And he raised a lot of money, millions of dollars in one meeting. This the cabal of wealthy Jews, American and some Canadian, the Seagram's family, uh, you know, Bronfman, they were also involved. Uh, this group became known as the Sonneborn Institute. All very anonymous. Nobody was supposed to know who was involved. And they gave the money for Israel, to, for, the, for the Yishuv to buy weapons. The weapons were shipped from New York to Palestine in cases that were labeled textile equipment. Textile equipment. Fifteen years later, this Sonneborn Institute would be reactivated, and most of the same people, some new people, would be solicited for money, but this time not to buy conventional weapons for the Yishuv, but rather to facilitate the production of nuclear weapons for the state of Israel. Um, and so, not surprisingly, if the first go-around it was textile equipment, the second go-around, the Dimona nuclear facility would be known as the textile factory. That was the cover story, textile factory. But Ben-Gurion needed a scientist. A scientist who would go along with his wishes to pursue the ultimate weapon. And the man he chose for this task was Professor De Ernst David Bergman. Alan, that's a great Mets uniform. I like it. Um... So Ernst David Bergman was the son of a rabbi, a German Orthodox rabbi, was born in Germany in 1903, made Aliyah in 1934, and was the head of the, the Seif Institute, which would go on to become the, the Weizmann Institute. Bergman believed, as did Ben-Gurion, that you had to mobilize the Shuvs and in the States scientific community for nationalistic 
patriotic security purposes. In other words, you don't engage in abstract research for the fun of it or for the glory of a scientific career. Rather, you do your research and you 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 accomplish your tasks for the sake of the defense of Am Yisrael. And in this matter, Bergman clashed with Weizmann. Weizmann did not believe that the scientific community should be mustered for these purposes. So in 1951, Bergman left Rehovot and became the scientific advisor to the defense ministry, basically the scientific guru working directly for Ben-Gurion. Um, and he became the head of Femed. Femed was the initial iteration of Israel's weapons producing uh, agency. It would go from being Chemed to Emet to Raphael, to various transitions throughout the 1950s. Ben-Gurion wanted Bergman to take a military rank, but Bergman refused, and he argued pretty convincingly that if he were to take a military rank, he would have trouble gaining access to scientific institutions in foreign countries, because as an as a visiting professor, you're you know you're a benign character, you're you're kosher. But if you're wearing a military uniform and have a badge uh, rank, all of a sudden the, the universities in Western Europe and the, the Americas will look askance at who are you? Who is this guy? Okay, so instead, Chemed became a civilian body within the defense ministry, accountable only to the minister himself. And who is the defense minister? David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister. Um, but then in 1952, Bergman was moving to a different position, and Mardor was being solicited by Ben-Gurion to take the job as the weapons manufacturer. He was able to guilt trip Mardor into taking the job, even though he didn't want it and his wife didn't want him to take it. They, the wife wanted him to go into private enterprise at that point and make Parnassa and not to be a government employee anymore. But Ben-Gurion had a trump card over him. Mardor, back in 1940, when he was a member of the Haganah, had bombed the Patria. Now, if you know your Zionist history, the Patria was a ship of Holocaust refugees that came to Palestine, was stuck, was blocked by the British at the, at the port, and was stuck there. And the, the plan was blow a hole in the, in the ship that it will sink slowly, and the British will have to let the, the refugees off and come ashore, and that's how they'll get to Eretz Israel. The problem was the blast was too large, and 200 people died. They they drowned to death in the sinking of the ship. So Mardor always had a guilt on his head that he killed people inadvertently. Uh, and so he took the job. So this job of Emet would be long-term, large-scale defense industry projects with a high amount of theoretical research. Uh, the Army guys didn't like this because... They felt money was being wasted on stuff that doesn't matter right now, and we can barely feel the conventional force uh, to fight the Arabs at the borders. So not everybody appreciated the, the significance of spending money and time and effort on developing sophisticated weaponry. Um, how did Mardor get people to sign up, scientists to sign up for this institute? The answer is offer them lucrative packages, competing with, with, with the, the, the salaries offered at Hebrew University. But with the, he reserved the right to move people around. Despite it being a socialist country, he's the boss. And if he tells you to do something, you do it. You don't have specific job security. The other thing is strict secrecy had to be maintained. If you were a blabbermouth, you couldn't work here. And if you were affiliated with a political party that was not the Mapai, Ben-Gurion's party, then you were suspect and maybe couldn't get a job. 
and there were issues of having to p- let people through with protexia because because they they needed it since they had a party affiliations which were not mapai. Okay, now what did Israel do to develop a cadre of scientists, of physicists, who could really accomplish the task of a homegrown nuke? The answer is Israel sent its best physics students abroad for training because there were no PhD professors, uh, uh, doctoral programs in Israel at the time. So they sent some students to France, to the United States, to study with the big names in the world of physics. But the problem is when they came home, was the investment recovered? Not always. Some developed the patriotic ethos of Let's build weapons because the state needs weapons. But others developed the approach of, no, no, I'm a scientist. And I don't think this building of, of, of uh, the ultimate deterrent, the big weapons, is in the best interest of the state. I don't want to participate in this. I think it's a bad idea. I'm going to go off on my own and have a scientific career. So, you know, some people went this way. Some people went that way. The most famous of the scientists who Israel trained who opposed nuclear uh, weapons was Amos de Shalit. Uh, he was the adversary of Bergman. He felt, no, no, it's a bad idea. Let's not pursue it. One of the reasons to to not pursue nuclear weapons was not so much a moral argument, but rather that Israel is a small country and doesn't have the economic wherewithal, the industrial wherewithal, to accomplish this task. And therefore, it's a fool's errand. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get it done. You're gonna try, and it's gonna, it's gonna be an abysmal failure. Okay. Well, things are progressing. There's scientific research being done. Um, but there's a crisis on hand in late 1953, early 1954. And what is that? Ben-Gurion retires. Now, if you know your sto- the story, Ben-Gurion disappears to Stabokare for about a year and a half, two years, because he's tired and he, he needs to relax a little bit and hang out with the, with the goats and, 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 and uh, use the pitchfork to, to move the hay. So, you know, he's in the Negev hanging around, but his retirement doesn't last very long because uh, ultimately the people he leaves behind can't get the job done. Moshe Sharet, who's his successor as the prime minister, is a dove and doesn't believe in nuclear weapons. Pinchas Lavon, the defense minister, is not necessarily a dove, but uh, doesn't believe in the pursuit of of, uh, of heavy weaponry, and he transfers Emmet back to the, to the Weizmann Institute. No more uh, physics works for the Department of Defense. It would be a total loss. But then, Lavon had his problem, the Lavon affair, which we've discussed in the past. And so he's out, of the, he's out the door. He doesn't last very long. And Gurion was back in the Defense Ministry after 13 months. And then... Later, later that year, 1955, in November, after the election, Ben-Gurion is back as prime minister. So once Ben-Gurion was back in the saddle, he was able to reactivate the physics research and pursue the nuclear project as a number one priority. He invited members of the Manhattan Project and other leading uh, scientists, so we're talking Oppenheimer, Teller, Rabbi, Weisskopf, to come to Israel, and some of them came in 1952, Oppenheimer came again in 1958. All these guys were Jewish, uh, and Israel was going to learn from their expertise. In December of 53, 
President Eisenhower began his Adams for Peace program. And in May of 55, a deal was struck between the United States and Israel for a small reactor. It would be a five megawatt reactor, the swimming pool type with uranium rods and a heavy water. And it would be financed with a $350,000 grant provided by the United States. It would be built along the Mediterranean at Palmachim Beach at Nachal Sorek, uh, a few miles south of Tel Aviv. But this was a small reactor, a sort of a plaything. It wasn't what Israel really wanted. Israel expressed interest in producing a small amount of plutonium, but the United States refused. Bergman, ever the hawk, suggested that Israel exploit the reactor for the separation of plutonium in violation of the agreement with the United States. Whoa, that's that's dangerous. That's dangerous. You know, the Americans are giving you something, and you're going to cross them, and you're going to and you're going to violate the terms of the agreement. That's that's a risky business. So, Amos de Shalit warned Munya Mardor, don't do this. And Ben-Gurion ultimately ruled against any funny business. The American-paid reactor will not be used for plutonium, will not be used on the weapons project. So stick to the deal with the United States. Instead, if we want to have outside help in producing an atomic weapon, we'll have to find a crack in the embargo somewhere else. Somewhere else. Now remember, there was an embargo imposed by England, France, and the United States on weapons to Israel. Israel had bupkis. I mean, it really had nothing. So if you're going to somehow get help on the nuclear front, one of these countries is going to have to abandon the embargo and embrace Israel's defense interests, which nobody had thus far. And now we're going to find somebody will. And who's it going to be? France. Why France? Let's find out. Well, in 1955, there were some in the French Interior Ministry who expressed concern about the sufficiency of Israel's defensive capabilities. The the Interior Minister, Maurice Bourges-Manori, and his aides, Abel Thomas and Louis Mangan, are the key figures here. Now, Abel Thomas, remember about 10 minutes ago I mentioned his name. He was the one whose brother died uh, um, at Buchenwald, and who was a, a Jew lover, that he, he committed himself to the defense of Am Yisrael. So how do we benefit from this, that there are people who are concerned about Israel's defense? Well, at the time, the uh, economic advisor to the prime minister was a Jew by the name of George Elgozi, a Sephardic Jew named Elgozi. And Shimon Peres was sent to, to Paris to liaise with this Elgozi character and try to get access to the highest-ranking officials in the government. Paris at the time didn't speak a word of French. Later on, he became fluent because him and the French became buddy-buddies. But uh, at the time, he knew nothing. So he goes there, and Elgozi is able to get him into meetings with high-ranking people. But they all say, we'd love to help you, but there's an embargo. We'd love to help you, but there's an embargo. Um... By the way, what role does Shimon Peres play at this point? He's the, the, the director general of the defense ministry, like the CEO of the defense ministry. So something's got to budge. And it'll turn out that France needs Israel. And that will change things. The situation in North Africa was what was at stake. The FLN, the Algerian National Liberation Front, was founded in Cairo in 1954. 
the French government suspected correctly that President Gamal Abdul Nasser of Egypt was a key player in fomenting and supporting the Algerian rebellion. And in 1955, Czechoslovakia had cut an arms deal with Egypt, presumably with the blessing of the USSR. So the French needed Israel's help finding intelligence on the Egyptian-Algerian connection, and the Israelis needed French help in gaining conventional weapons. I say conventional, not yet nuclear. So there's a dovetailing of interests here. We need you, because what you have, and what we need, and you, and the op- and vice versa. So the first person to realize this was Burgess Manori, the interior minister. And he empathized with the Jewish people. He had been a German PO, in a German POW camp. And in his mind, his listen to this comparison. He said, in Israel, there's one million Jews surrounded by a million by millions of bloodthirsty Arabs, and in Algeria, there's a million Frenchmen surrounded by millions of bloodthirsty Arabs. So he, he saw there was a parallel and wanted to to work this connection for mutual benefit. In his mind, Nasser reminded him of Hitler. He, and Minori would not be the first one to say the Nasser-Hitler uh, comparison. As for Israel, the situation in 1955 and late 55 was very bad. The Arabs were gaining the military advantage, courtesy of the acquisition of new arms. Fedayeen attacks from Gaza were happening on a regular basis. Uh, people didn't ask if there was going to be war. They asked when there was going to be war. And some proposed a preemptive strike against Egypt. But Ben-Gurion consistently refused. And the reason he refused was because he felt that, let's say Israel goes to a preemptive war. And let's even assume they win, which you can't guarantee, but let's assume they win. The day the war is over, the same situation will obtain as was before the war. That Israel lacks international standing, lacks a sufficient supply of weapons, and worse yet, will be labeled an aggressor state. So you can't go to war preemptively alone. What you might be able to do is go to war preemptively with the help of world powers, which is what will happen a year later. Okay, so the Mossad and the Amman military intelligence did not want Israel getting involved in any funny business with France over the Algeria issue. Isser Harel said, it's not our war. Don't get involved. But Ben-Gurion saw this as a one-time opportunity to extract major concessions from a powerful Western country. France sold Israel 12 Mr. Jet uh, planes over the objection of the French foreign ministry. And then another 12 came after that. So planes are coming in. This is a big deal. Israel finally has access to the most uh, advanced weapons compared to what they had previously, courtesy of a Western power. And uh, the Israeli foreign ministry was kept totally in the dark about this. The ambassador of Israel to France knew nothing about it. All this is happening with Shimon Peres and Moshe Dayan, the chief of staff of the military, running the show. Sharet, who was at that point the foreign minister, no longer the prime minister, but now the foreign minister, was angry that he was being excluded from all the action. You know, major stuff is happening in terms of policy, and he has no clue. So he either was forced out or resigned. The bottom line is he's gone. June 19th, 1956. Basically not to be heard much from again. And Golda Meir takes his place. But Golda was also kept out of the loop. 
The military and the defense ministry, they were the ones who handled everything. The foreign, the foreign service was left out. Um, and in June of 1956, the end of the month, Shimon Peres signed a $70 million defense deal with France for 200 tanks, 72 jet fighters, and thousands of, of, of tank shells. So here, Israel's rolling. We're getting stuff, you know, making the cutting deals. And then the big moment. On July 26, 1956, Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal. He was angry with the Americans and with the British because they didn't want to fund the, the Aswan High Dam. Uh, and, and the canal was owned by British and French investors. So this was an act of theft, of piracy of the highest order. France decided to go to war with Egypt, but wanted Israel's participation. The British were not yet in on this plot. And as I said, Israel Harel objected. But ben, and Ben-Gurion himself was still suspicious of France. He was interested. He's thinking about it. But he's still a little bit suspicious. So between July and late October, intelligence is shared. Israel sort of fulfills its end of the bargain. We'll give you all the information you need to know about Egypt, about Algeria. So Colonel Yuval Neiman would go on to have a very illustrious career in academia and in public service. Uh, was going back and forth to Paris many times, delivering official reports. Um, Israel broke the Egyptian code and was able to feed information about the rebellion in Algeria to the French, uh, the kinds of, of, of uh, intelligence uh, information that previously was unavailable to them. Israel Harel felt that bad things are happening. He felt that the Mossad's reputation was being diminished that Jewish communities in North Africa were being put, put in danger. And by the way, the Mossad had established in North Africa several Jewish defense uh, organizations to protect against pogroms. And Harel felt pogroms are going to break out if anybody finds out that the Jews are helping suppress the rebellion. Uh, and lastly, he felt that the state of Israel was being endangered by Ben-Gurion's international intrigue. Now, the IDF elites... They liked all this because for the next three months, they got to travel back and forth to Paris all the time. And whereas in Israel, there were austerity measures. And if you had a piece of bread with margarine, that was a good dinner. In Paris, you can go to fancy trafe restaurants and drink champagne. So they were living it up, uh, you know, in the good life of the nightlife of Paris. There was a three-way disagreement going on at this point about the pursuit of a nuclear weapon. Amos de Shalit and his ilk, opposed the bomb project, as did Golda Meir, as did Isser Harel. Bergman wanted to pursue the project independently. But Shimon Peres recognized very quickly that Bergman's ideas was pure fantasy, lunacy. Israel could not produce a bomb on its own. The only solution was to turn to France for help. And in 1956, even the French themselves were very far away from, from a, a, a bomb. They lacked plutonium. They would not explode one until 1960. Now, as it turned out, of these three various opinions of don't do it, do it independently, or do it with French help, Paris was right. And years later, Isser Harel, writing in his memoirs, who trashed Shimon Peres, he hated him with a passion, said that, yeah, Peres was a bad character on the whole, and his career mostly wasn't good. But the one thing Shimon did right he was a virtuoso in the way he played the French to get Israel a nuclear bomb. So Harel was moda al ha'emes. He admitted the truth that his adversary Perez did, did a good job here. But he only admitted it years and years later. So in September of 56, 
the French Atomic Energy Commission agreed to sell Israel a 10 megawatt reactor. But the French government had to approve. And Britain refused to join the Suez War unless it had a pretext to justify military action. The British said, we're not going to go to war unless something happens to morally justify our intervention. We need a pretext. So the French turned to Israel and said, supply us with a pretext and we'll give you a nuclear weapon. That's the deal. We want the British to join. They want a pretext. You give us the pretext, we'll give you the nuclear bomb. Fresh taste, everybody. You understand what's going on here? That's the deal. So it almost didn't work out. Why? For a really weird reason. Usually, you're either somebody's ally or somebody's enemy or you're indifferent. You know, plus, minus, or in the middle, zero. Is it possible to be allied with a country and fighting with them in a war while simultaneously fighting against them in a different war? Does that make any sense? Not really. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect that to happen in the history of humanity. But it almost happened here. What am I talking about? Well, in late 1956, the West Bank border with Israel was heating up. Soldiers from the Jordanian Arab Legion were on a somewhat regular basis firing shots, pot shots over the Green Line. And a couple of Israelis died. So the government had a problem. What do you do about this? How do we get the Jordanians to behave themselves? So every now and then, the IDF would go across the Green Line, some military maneuver, blow up a few houses or kill some people, whatever it might be. And in Kalkilia, and why why is the name of the city Kalkilia? Because they'll kill you. That's the, that's the Kishmo Kainu. Um, there was a, a, a an episode on October 11th, 1956, and the IDF did not handle it well. Bad intelligence, it didn't go well. 18 IDF soldiers died, and about 100 Jordanians died. So the Jordanians, under King Hussein, petitioned the British and says, let's activate our mutual defense treaty, and you come to the aid of the Arab Legion and go to war with Israel. So the Americans were watching this and wondering what's going to happen. Is, is England going to go to war against Israel? On the, on the West Bank border, it, it was a possibility. Because of that distraction, the Americans and others didn't realize that in that very moment, Israel was going to be at war, not against England, but with England on their same team together with France, a tripartite alliance. So Eisenhower's administration was really caught off guard by the outbreak of the Suez War. Now, the big question was, would Israel be willing to be a spearhead of aggression against a large Arab state? And in mid-October, Ben-Gurion was still refusing. Uh, but there was a big secret meeting at Sever near Paris on October 21st. And representing Israel was Ben-Gurion himself, Dayan and Perez, and representing the French and the British were their foreign ministers. A deal was reached. Israel would attack in exchange for the nuclear option. Ben-Gurion declared privately... If we do not move now, we'll have to fight Nasser in the future without the French. So better to do it now with the French than to do it later without the French. No official document was signed regarding the nuclear protocol, uh, although documents were signed regarding the basic outline of the war, the conventional aspects of the war. The Americans were further distracted by the fact that the, the, the uprising in Hungary broke out basically at the same time. 
So there's a lot going on in the world, and you can't follow all things at once. Well, October 29th, the war breaks out. Israel sends paratroopers with Ariel Sharon to the Midland Gidi Passes, about 30 miles east of the canal. And infantry invade Sinai, go across towards the canal, and also down the uh, the, the, the coastline to Sharm el-Sheikh, to the Straits of Tehran. Um, then the British and the French, as per the, the previously arranged deal, insist that both Israel and Egypt remove their forces from the canal, withdraw. As was known ahead of time, Israel would agree to withdraw, Egypt would refuse. That would be the pretext for the British and the French to invade and force the Egyptians to withdraw. The British and the French were delayed by a week, bad weather, whatever it is, various factors. It wasn't until November 6th that they really get involved. They occupy uh, Port uh, Said and um, uh, uh, one other uh, area on the northern end of the, of the canal by the Mediterranean. And then the war comes to a halt. Why does the war come to a halt? Because the USSR, the Soviet Union, sends a message to everyone saying, we have nuclear weapons and we're not afraid to use them. So the Russians are playing tough. Was it a bluff? Probably was a bluff. But they're scaring everyone. Oh, we got to pull back. So Ben-Gurion, who just a few days earlier was talking about the third kingdom of Israel and annexing the, the Sinai and annexing the Sharm el-Sheikh, all of a sudden is going to have to walk things back. Eisenhower just got re-elected. So the Suez War, the Hungarian uprising, Eisenhower's re-election are all happening simultaneously. The news coverage that night must have been tremendous. I wonder what Walter Cronkite was talking about. So uh, Israel agreed to pull back. But in exchange for the full realization of the nuclear deal with France, Dayan thought the, disgra- the, the retreat was disgraceful. But in hindsight, it was worthwhile. It got Israel the ultimate deterrent. But even though Israel agreed to play along with his game, it almost didn't work out well, because French governments were notorious for falling, and falling very quickly. France was in political turmoil, having been embarrassed in the Suez War. So uh, what happened was, the bourgeoisie Manori government, which was pro-Israel, was literally tearing on collapse, and the very last act that the government took before it fell was to sign off on the agreement with Israel for the delivery of the nuclear goods. Charles de Gaulle would emerge as the uh, president of France and the leader of the Fifth Republic in May of 58. So there was like about six, seven months of real turmoil in the country, um, and de Gaulle is now in charge. De Gaulle would take a turn against Israel. He did not want this nuclear deal to happen, and what? why was it ultimately successful? Because officials in the French administration ignored de Gaulle's instructions, they violated his orders, conducted an independent foreign policy, and adhered to the, the signed agreement with Israel. And so French contractors uh, were, were heading off to Beersheba, off to Dimona, and the, the goods were flowing. This was a very unusual situation, a unique situation in world history. Never before or never since had one country supplied another country with nuclear capability. Every other situation was the country that developed a bomb did so of their own resources and their own uh, intellectual power. This is the only case of 
it being not given totally, but in large measure, one country to another. Okay, well, the uh, the Suez War, just to, to sum up uh, you know, on, on this particular issue, it led to the demise of the British and the French as real-world powers. They were no longer. They were second-rate powers at that point. Israel, however, came out very powerful. On the, on the, the level of the battlefield, the visible battlefield, Israel routed the Egyptians. A smaller country defeated a much larger country, big time, and took lots of territory. Yeah, it gave it back, but it took it. And the other thing is the nuclear know-how. So we can look back upon the Suez episode as providing Israel long-term deterrence, but also in the shorter term or intermediate term, 10 years of peace until the Six-Day War. 10 years of peace for the small country of Israel at that time was a godsend. You know, considering that war was thought to be inevitable and happening with great frequency, to have a 10, 11 years of peace was worth it. Okay, so now that we, we, we put the Suez War behind us, who's going to be in charge of implementing the nuclear deal? The answer is Shalhevet Fryer. Is Shalhevet a boy's name or a girl's name? Now, it's a girl's name, of course. So why am I asking you? Because this Shalhevet Fryer was a boy. Okay, he had a funny, funny name. Who's who was his mother? You may remember, you may recognize the mother's name, Recha Fryer. She's known in Holocaust history as the, the woman who was in charge of the Berlin Youth Aliyah that saved a lot of children by sending them from Germany to Eretz Israel between thirty-four and thirty-nine. Uh, so her son was involved with uh, the Demona Project. So his job primarily was to make sure the people who are not supposed to know about it don't know about it. Um, The goal was to keep the Americans away for at least five years. After five years, then enough progress will have been made in construction, uh, in the the production of of, uh, nuclear materials and plutonium, that if it gets uncovered, so it'll be uncovered. But for five years, we got to keep everybody, the prying eyes away. Well, one of the ways that you convince people that Israel is not pursuing a weapon is for Israelis to say, oh, we're a small little nothing country. How could we produce a weapon? In other words, you, you belittle yourself into convince, and then thereby convincing others that, yeah, these people think they're nothing, so that they're not going to pursue any sophisticated weaponry. Now, there were problems. There were problems over the years. In 1957, towards the very beginning, it was recognized that the Weizmann Institute's radiology, um, a radioactivity laboratory was contaminated. And many of the scientists whose names I've mentioned tonight died young of cancer, including the Shalit uh, and Dror and Sadeh. Many of the big names involved in Demona died young. Okay. Now, at, at the time, Demona was referred to, as I said, as a textile factory. That was the cover story. There's the false front. What about the French? And I mentioned the French, they didn't explode their first weapon until 1960 in the Sahara Desert. They invited several Israelis to watch because Israel was interested. You know, let's see, how does it really work? They're helping us. They're giving us the know-how. But are they are they capable themselves? Okay, and it worked. Um, construction on Demona began in late 57, but was by 1960 still 
only some bulldozers, some foundation. You could not see very much there as of yet. But how are you going to hide this from the world? Hundreds of Frenchmen were descending upon Beersheba. So the job of concealment was given to LACAM, the Bureau of Scientific Relations. And basically, you got to scare these people. you got to scare these workers into never speaking about what they're doing. And even years later, the Frenchmen who worked at Demona, they didn't talk. Nearly all of them, or all of them, refused to be interviewed for books that were written about this subject. Why? Because the fear of, of, of the Mossad was still upon them. They were gripped by the fear of the Mossad. What would happen to them if they, if they spilled the beans? The construction work was, was conducted under the auspices of Colonel Emmanuel Manus Pratt. Um, and he had no scientific background, but they liked that he was a, you know, a, a, a good construction guy. He, gave, he was given the task, go for it. Where was the bomb actually produced? So the, the, while the nuclear materials were produced at Demona, in the Negev facility, the bomb itself was produced at a factory near Haifa by Raphael, by the, by the munitions manufacturer. Nobody knew how long this was going to take. There was no timeline. There was no predicted budget. This was all guesswork and going with the flow. Whatever happens, happens. But we don't know what to predict. We don't know when it's going to be done, how much it's going to cost. Um, now Israel got lucky that in the years after de Gaulle took over, the head of the French Atomic Energy Commission was actually a philo-Semite and was willing to, to you know, flout the authority of his president in still helping out his Israeli friends. Some of the, the scientists at Dimona did have some, some moral questions. Uh, you know, there, were, there was some soul-searching. This was, after all, the era of the Russell-Einstein Manifesto for nuclear disarmament. But the fact of the Shoah and the garrison state that was the state of Israel, and still is the state of Israel, won over most of these scientists. The bomb would be a necessary evil. But now comes the hard part, covering your tracks. In 1960, a Russian satellite flew over Dimona. The concern was that the Russians would, ta- would tell the Americans and get Israel into trouble and mess up the whole thing. So some people in the, in the defense ministry and in the project suggested to Ben-Gurion that he go to America and fess up to Eisenhower. But Perez said no. What did the Russians see? They didn't see a reactor. They saw some, some, some shovels in the ground and a few bulldozers. They can't tell with their satellite imagery of 1960 what's really going on over there. They saw construction. Big deal. Big whoop. Besides which, we have a responsibility to maintain our sec- the secrecy that we promised to maintain with the French. The New York Times, as we'll see uh, soon enough, ran a story in December of 1960 based in part upon U- uh, 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 U-2 sp- uh, spy plane um, sat- uh, 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 photography. So the Russians had satellites. The Americans had planes flying at 70,000 feet. But both had some kind of uh, pictorial imagery, imagery of what was going on. So here, a peripheral little country was gate crashing the nuclear playground, and the big world powers want to know what's going on over there. What's going on over there? Well, by 1960, Diane and Paris were in the Knesset, and they were in the government too. Paris was the deputy defense minister, and Diane was the agriculture minister. And they were positioning themselves to be the successors of David Ben-Gurion. 
So they formed one team. They were uh, aligned against Mossad Hedisar Harel and Foreign Minister Golda Meir. Harel and Golda had three theories why pursuing the nuclear project was a bad idea. Three different theories. One, you can't rely upon the French regime. Two, Shimon Peres is a shady character and is totally unreliable and, dis- and distru- uh, untrustworthy. And three, um, the uh, America is not going to be able to be kept out long enough for this project to succeed. As it turned out, Golda and Isra Harel were wrong on all three points. Despite the precariousness of the French regimes, they upheld their end of the bargain. Despite Shimon Peres being a, Shimon Peres being a shady character, he gave Ben Gurion reliable and honest reports about the progress of the, of the of the nuclear project. And the third thing, the Americans were kept at bay just long enough to make this thing work. Okay. Well, the Knesset plenum, the member, the 120 members of the Knesset, had not been told in 55. 57, 58, 59, 60, all this was kept very secret from members of the Knesset. The members of the coalition, who were not members of the Mapai, knew nothing. The opposition leader, Benachem Begin, was never informed. Israeli society was very conformist, and the press didn't, didn't, uh, didn't press for information. So not that many people really knew anything. The, there were three circles of people who knew. The outermost circle including some academics, some journalists, some politicians, a few hundred people, they knew something was being built at Dimona. The middle circle, which was probably uh, about 100 people, they knew the, the real purpose of the reactor was for weapons production, not peaceful purposes. And the most inner circle, which was only about 20 people, they knew the, the, uh, the latest updates and technological advances that were going on at the nuclear facility. Those who were opposed to the whole project felt it was going to gobble up all the resources that the state had. The head of the Knesset Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defense was quoted as saying, there won't be rice to eat in Israel. There won't be grain to eat in Israel. The children will go hungry. While Ben-Gurion builds his bomb, the kids are going to starve. Um, So there was opposition in academia, in the military, and in the political circles. They didn't think Israel's industry was up to the task. And there was some ideological resistance as well. And among the scientists, some just didn't want their careers scuttled by association with a sinful project. So overcoming the academic resistance was difficult, but eventually doable. Overcoming military resistance was a lot easier because Ben Green himself is the defense minister. He's the boss. He's the supreme commander. If a general gets out of line, he shows them who's boss. Uh, But the generals tended to not want money spent on missile production because basic supplies were were in in short supply and military families were going hungry. You're taking the bread out of the mouths of military families to to spend it on pie-in-the-sky dreams of nuclear weapons. So Dayan, who was a Ben-Gurion loyalist, was actually on the fence, as he was on a lot of issues, wishy-washy, on the nuclear project. But eventually he came down by the mid-60s firmly in favor of the bomb. Ben-Gurion worked hard to fund Dimona, but did not concern himself with funding missile development. And this is probably the most important session, a section of the whole discussion. 
So if you if you were falling asleep because it's nine oh two, pay attention now. Ben Gurion was desperate to fund the reactor, but was sort of blasé about funding missile development. Why? The answer is this: He viewed the bomb as a defensive tool, deterrence, not as an offensive weapon. You build it so that you'll never have to use it. It's the bomb in the basement. So if that's the case, you have to build it. It has to be somewhat usable in some some fashion or capacity, but you don't have to worry about uh, multiple systems to, 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 uh, to deploy it. That's not going to come into play. Be vague about its existence, nuclear ambiguity. This way you don't draw enemy fire. You don't provoke the enemy. They think you have it, you probably do, and you could use it in the worst case scenario, but you don't have to deploy it all over the place uh, offensively. How is Ben Gurion able to conceal the expenditures on this massive undertaking? The answer is that there was a budget controlled by the Treasury Ministry, which was subject to Knesset oversight. But then there was the B budget. There's the A budget, and there's the B budget. And the B budget was like a slush fund that only the Mapai knew about, and the, the minister, uh, the, 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 uh, the treasury minister was always a member of the Mapai. At this point, it was Levi Eshkol, who would be Ben-Gurion's successor. And he could be relied upon to keep quiet. Don't say anything. $80 million it cost in 1960 dollars. Who's going to pay for all this? As I mentioned, the Center Board Institute, a bunch of rich Americans will contribute a fair amount. 25 people gave $40 million. So half the cost was paid for by 25 British American Jews in the Shmata business, in this business, that business. They got together in Manhattan on the east side and, and forked over the money. The money was known as Hakdasha. The donors were called Makdishim. If you know your Gemara, what is Hakdish? Donate something to the temple to make it holy. As far as Ben-Gurion was concerned, Israel's atomic weapon was like a korban, like a korbanola. Holy, like right out of the, out of, out of the Bible. Uh, so you're, it's Kodesh Kadashim, Holy of Holies. Um, one of the things Israel needed was heavy water. They tried to buy it from the Americans, but the Americans had attached too many stipulations. They bought it from Norway. What, at the time, Norway was out of stock, having sold off much of its supply uh, to other nuclear powers. And England had bought in surplus, and so Norway asked England to give over 20 tons of heavy water to Israel in a transfer, and England did. So actually, the British had an inkling of what was going on, Israel buying a lot of, a lot of heavy water, and the Norwegians also had an inkling of what was going on. This deal happened on February 25th, 1959. There was an inspections clause attached to the deal with Norway. However, it was never acted upon at least not until Mordechai Vanunu spilled the secrets in 1986. And then the Norwegians got a little bit upset. But that was 27 years later, and a lot of water under the bridge, no pun intended. So, uh, Dimona was uncovered in December of 1960. What happened? Professor Henry Jacob Gomberg of the University of Michigan, and with a name like Henry Jacob Gomberg, he was a Jew. Okay, delivered a report to the U.S. intelligence community saying that Israel was pursuing a nuclear weapon. From America's point of view, Gomberg's report came two years too late to stop the project. 
from the Israeli point of view, it came two years too early. It could sabotage the project. So what's going on here? Gomberg was invited to Israel, and the nuclear guys in Israel were blabbing to him. They were spilling the beans. Not explicitly, but you know, enough hints here and there that Gomberg got the got the gist of it. He drew the, the, the appropriate conclusions and issued a watershed report. However, many think, many scholars believe, that Israel wanted him to blow the cover on Demona, and they fed him information deliberately that he should be the one to forward matters to the U.S. intelligence community. Why would Israel give up on its secrecy at this point? The answer is, secrecy was weakening anyway. It would inevitably get out. Hundreds of foreigners were living in the Negev, working in some facility. So you throw the press a chunk of meat, and they run with it, and get, get them off your back. America had several prior er, earlier warnings in 57, 58, 59, but the State Department and the CIA failed to recognize the significance of any of the information that was being shared with them. In September of 60, Bergman was leaking, uh, was speaking like a leaky faucet on purpose. So, okay, Bergman, uh, Gomberg was used to get the, the word to the Americans. Uh, Alan Dulles of the CIA on December 2nd of 1960 makes a public statement that Dimona is not for peaceful purposes. Abe Harmon, the Israeli ambassador to America, gets called into the State Department and says, explain yourself. And Abe, good old Abe says, I don't know anything. And he really didn't, because after all, most government officials didn't know anything. So uh, there were then articles in the Times, uh, Time magazine, London Daily Mail, and the New York Times. Ben-Gurion was really stressed out by the New York Times article. Why? Because he was accustomed to censorship in Israel. And he couldn't fathom how in the United States, the newspapers can publish whatever they want. <laughs> like freedom of, of, of the press baffled him. Okay, fine. The question is, how would the White House respond? What would the Eisenhower administration do now that they know that Demona is not for peaceful purposes, or at least it is suspected Demona is not for peaceful purposes? So Eisenhower is on his way out. JFK is on his way in. The, the, the transition is, you know, 40 days away, 45 days away. So Eisenhower decided to focus on who was financing this project. Follow the money. Maybe the people who gave the money were in violation of the tax-exempt status for their donations. And you can't give money and take a write-off if you're buying a nuclear bomb. It's not like giving money to the yeshiva or to the mikvah. Okay? Um, so they tried to follow the money, but were really unsuccessful because the money had been covered up pretty well. Um and the other thing the Eisenhower administration was concerned about is how will the, the Soviets and how will the Arabs react? We want to make sure that the Soviets and the Arabs don't think that we were the ones who conspired with the Israelis. So get ahead of the curve and say it wasn't us. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, the State Department issued a, a response, not the White House, and it was very moderate. The administration decided not to try to cancel or even to freeze the Demona project. The only question was that of inspections, and even that wasn't vigorously pursued, at least not yet. Under Kennedy, it will be more vigorously pursued, and Israel will have its problems with JFK. Uh, that's for next next week's uh, uh, the session two weeks from now, when we, we, when we continue in the, the story in 61, 62, 63. But uh, this was a Hanukkah miracle. It was the last day of Hanukkah. And the, the Americans are not going to bust the chops of the Israelis. They're going to let it slide, basically. So Ben-Gurion gets 
up to the Knesset podium on the last day of Hanukkah and makes a brief comment about how there is a, a nuclear facility, research facility being built in the Negev, and it's for peaceful purposes, research purposes. No debate about the moral significance of this. No debate about the environmental impact of any of this. It was just stated. He walks off the podium. Done. Nothing. The American ambassador to Israel, Ogden Reed, called Ben-Gurion a few days later to wish him a Shana Tova, a secular Happy New Year. And Reed stressed that the U.S. government does not wish to prolong or exaggerate this issue. What's the perush on that? We don't want to prolong or exaggerate this issue. It means we're not going to be on your case about this too much. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to do. And we may not like it, but we're not going to stop you. So that's good. That's good. It's about as benign a reaction as you could hope for. Now, in late January of 61, shortly after JFK was inaugurated, the CIA put a 17-page document in front of his desk, on the, on the Resolute desk, in which they explained how and why American intelligence uh, uh, agencies failed to realize what Dimona was all about. And the bottom line of that report was it was a problem of preconception, uh, the concept. that The concept was Israel can't do it alone. And if they were to do it with help, we would have known about that help. So the, the concept was half right. Israel couldn't do it alone. But what? With the, Israel had help and the Americans didn't know about it. So the Americans had this, this idea that they would figure it out if it was ever recurring. So if they didn't know, it must be it's not happening. It's, it's a sort of an idiotic concept, but that, that's what the community, the, you know, the, the CIA and, and the, the uh, National Security Council believe. Okay, now what happened to Gomberg? So Professor old, old Henry Hank Gomberg, what happened to him? When he first realized that Demona was not for peaceful purposes, he wanted to issue uh, some kind of a, a release. He went to the American embassy in Tel Aviv. And the American embassy in Tel Aviv says, "Get the hell out of here! The 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 the, CIA, the Mossad's going to be on your on your case right at the door of our our building. They'll arrest you on the spot. Get out of here. Get on a plane. Go to Paris and send a cable from the American embassy in Paris back to Washington or to Langley. Uh, but don't do it from Israeli soil. You'll get picked up and hauled off. As it turned out." The, the, the Mossad never never chased after Gomberg. He was a good American Jew. He meant well. He was a good scientist. And Israel bore him no grudge. He was just a patsy in this game that was being played. And he served a useful purpose. It was part of the plan. Why was this the plan? Because Ben-Gurion realized that it would be wrong and injurious to the cause if the Americans were the last to know. Better they should know before some of the others. And moreover, you can't make a public statement in the Knesset chamber, even about peaceful purposes of a reactor, before the American uh, Atomic Energy Commission has some inkling of what's going on. So as a sort of a, the decent thing to do and the prudent thing to do for U.S.-Israeli relations was to give America some kind of a, an awareness before you go public about it. Okay, so that's enough for tonight. In two weeks, we'll continue and we'll go, go through the 1960s uh, the construction, the finishing of the construction at Dimona, the production of the weapon, and the role that the, the existence or non-existence of that weapon played uh, in armed conflict in the Middle East in the late 60s into the early 70s. Okay? So everybody have themselves a good night, and we'll see each other in two weeks. Take care.